You are listening to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? What's new? Uh, I'm really excited about today's episode because I'm going to dig deep and try to learn some stuff about uh, TV production, an area that I haven't been able to work in yet. A very popular area these days for directors, for filmmakers, uh, because of the success of Netflix, because of the success of Amazon. Uh, And it seems like a whole different world to me from the feature film world uh, and from the commercial world and from the music video world. Um, And I'm just fascinated with the scale and the scope that a lot of these new shows have. So like if you watch any of the Netflix stuff, you know, like if you watch Daredevil or The Punisher, you're sort of looking at it going, my God, the shows look amazing visually. Uh, they're action-packed. They have fight sequences. They have all this stuff. It's and it's so it's crammed in on such a tight timeline, such a tight budget. Um, it's like when I look at it, I go, "Fuck! This is like a 12-hour movie. How the fuck do they guys? How do they pull this shit off?" Um, and that's kind of what I want to get into for this show. You know, is it if you're hired as a cinematographer, who designs the look of the show? Is it the first guy that's hired? Um, and who's running the show? Because all the directors are for hire, unless one of the directors is like a big name, like Fincher or someone who becomes the showrunner. But on, on standard shows, is it the producers that run everything? And that if you are a director and you get hired on that show uh, that already has a formula in place, how creative can you be with how your episode looks and feels? Uh, these are a lot of really fascinating questions that I've always had. Um, and I wanted to find a guest that could really dig in deep and uh, maybe shed some light. And then I can sit here with you guys going, ah, right, cool, interesting, right, 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 right. So today's guest is a gentleman named Jeremy Benning. Uh, he's a hardworking cinematographer. He's a hardworking cinematographer from Toronto, Canada. And you may have seen his work with the Trailer Park Boys, actually, in their film Don't Legalize It. Or maybe you saw his award-winning cinematography in Killing Lincoln, which was produced by Ridley Scott. Um, But how I came to know his work is from a show called The Expanse. I don't know if you've seen this or not. I think it started on sci-fi. I think it's now on Amazon. I might have that wrong. But I remember seeing the initial trailer for it. And it's a a show that takes place in space. Uh, It's about uh, different groups that are in space, uh, people that live on Mars, fighting with people that live on Earth. And then there's this group of people that have been born and sort of live in space, which is pretty interesting. And the science in the show is really cool. Uh, but I remember watching the trailer for it going, what movie is this? Which is a good sign visually because I, I feel like with TV in the past, like growing up, TV always had severe restrictions with budget. And you knew you were, you knew the difference between a movie, t- like a TV movie and like a regular movie immediately. Um, But with this, it felt bigger Uh, and the lighting was really beautiful and it seemed like there was a lot of really beautiful set design. Um, So it had me hooked Uh, and I reached out to Jeremy because he has been shooting that show for four seasons. That's over 38 episodes. That's insane. So there's a lot that I want to ask this guy Um, and I hope that you guys find it as interesting or are as curious as I am about this thing. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. And uh, I apologize. I have been busting my ass all week shooting and doing everything else. 
So my voice is a bit raspy for this episode. Uh, the sexy is turned up to 10 as far as the tone is concerned. Uh, so I apologize for that. But uh, let's just jump right into it, okay? So you know the deal. Go find that comfy seat in your house. Uh, shut off all your lights. Uh, throw on those noise-canceling headphones. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the new episode of In Love With The Process. Okay. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, It's really cool. Very exciting. Um, I have a bunch of questions for you. Um, This is the first time that we're actually meeting and talking. Um, And uh, I'm a huge fan of your work on The Expanse. I think that's the first place that I saw your work. Um, And then as I went digging, um, I saw you shot that Trailer Boys movie, right? I did, yes, several <laughs> several years ago. But I, I've got a, a long relationship with uh, with Mike Clattenburg, the guy who uh, created it, and uh, so we've done a bunch of things together. Yeah, dude, one of my uh, assistant camera guys absolutely loves the Trailer Park Boys, <laughs> so I think that's probably the first place I've seen your stuff. And I, it, it's funny the connection between that and the Expanse. I know it's, it's like, very it's very different. I mean, there they could, you couldn't be more polar opposite than that, really. <laughs> Which is really cool. And as I sort of dug and did the research on your work you kind of are polar opposite because you do a lot of doc stuff or you've done a lot of documentary stuff. That's right. And then uh, you've done some pretty high concept, like very beautifully designed visual stuff with like The Expanse. And then the Lincoln film too, right? That is, yeah, the Lincoln, yeah, Killing Lincoln. Yeah, which is super cool. And that is actually produced by uh, Scott Free. Yep. So basically what I would love to talk to you on the show about uh, is television production and, and how you're integrated into it because I've never, I've only done uh, film stuff and commercial stuff, um, music video stuff. I've never done TV. And when I look at it from an audience perspective, from an outside point of view, I'm always astounded with it because it, these days it feels like, I don't know how the hell you guys pull it off. It feels like you guys have shot like a 12 hour movie yeah, w- with the scale and scope. Um, so I'd love to sort of dig in deep and throw some quite like serious questions that I have. About yeah, how the yeah, business of course. Um, but first let's start with a bit of history. So how long have you been on the show now? Uh, well, I started in the first season, so that's, um, we're on season. We just finished season four about two or three weeks ago, uh, shooting. So about four or five years, I guess. I mean, however long that is. I mean, we had some gaps of time between seasons, but it's, you know, since season one. So that's, it's roughly four or five years. Awesome. And then when you started the show, how did they, how'd you get the gig? How'd they find you? Um, you know, it's kind of funny. It, it, it sort of fell on my lap in a weird way. Like I had, it was around the time when I remember that the year before that, like House of Cards had just come out. And hmm. I remember I hadn't really focused or had any interest as a DP in television because I was doing independent films and commercials and little documentaries. And that was sort of very fulfilling for me. I really didn't, I wasn't pursuing television in that way. And I think partly it was because, you know, my background is a steady cam operator, right? And I did, I did that for like 15, 16 years cool. as well as DPing. So I had a, I had a pretty good taste of doing television work as a steady cam operator in the early two thousands here in Toronto. Um, and I, I, I sort of saw the world of television through the eyes of, uh, you know, a day player. I would come in and do like, you know, a week here, a few days here. I kind of got to bounce around and try different things as a steady cam operator. And that, that was actually a great thing for me to kind of learn how to um, 
to see how different productions worked. And mm-hmm. my experience at the time of seeing television um, was it didn't really appeal to me as a DP. Like, and I, it kind of gave me get that chance to sort of parachute in and see little bits and pieces. And I'm like, ah, it doesn't, I don't know. I just, I wasn't feeling it as a DP. Like, I don't know if there's something I want to pursue creatively. Cause I just sort of saw it as being this formulaic thing, but it was t- with television in like those days was very different than it is now. Yeah. So I kind of, I just didn't pursue it. I just sort of went back into the world I was already doing as a DP and just stayed there. And I didn't really even try to get into, into episodic television. And it wasn't until sort of when, you know, the revolution of television started happening when, you know, house of cards on Netflix was this big thing. And I remember watching that and thinking like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's pretty cool that they've made this like really compelling, like, you know, however many episodes uh, arc, and wouldn't mm-hmm. that be kind of cool to work on a show that that's like that? Like that's actually television I'd want to work on. That's the first time I kind of was aware of like television's different now. Maybe yeah. I should look into that, you know, as a thing to do. And it was the year, I guess it was that year where I got a call out of the blue from a line producer. Well, I was a production manager at the time here in Toronto, uh, Manny Danilon, who I didn't know. I'd, I'd heard his name, but because he was from that sort of feature and long format world that I wasn't really part of, I didn't really know um, him directly. And yeah. he called me out of the blue and said that he'd gotten my name from a couple of guys at a local uh, camera rental uh, house here that I had a relationship with. And they had suggested me because I guess they had, they'd been looking for people here in Toronto for the show. The show was already kind of, they were going to shoot in Toronto. They knew that. Yeah. And they wanted a, a local DP and they were seeking people. And I guess they'd been through a bunch of different options of people. They'd interviewed people. And I guess they weren't quite finding the right fit or something. And I, I guess he, Manny had gone to these guys at the, at this, at the camera rental place, which was Sim. And they basically, you know, I guess he described who they were looking for and they were like, Oh, that's Jeremy. You want to talk to Jeremy? And Manny didn't know who I was. He's like, he, cause I hadn't worked in that circle either. And so he called me up and said, look, they, you know, these guys recommended you. They should, they want, they said I should call you. And he, gave me the, the pitch. I was driving at the time and he gave me the pitch on the phone and, uh, and it sounded amazing. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, but I thought right away, it's like, there's no way in hell I'm going to get this because it's, it's just, it's too big and it's too like, it's just too big. It's like, I, I don't have anything on my, my list of credits that shows I can do this. Right. And, but he kind of described what they were looking for and it's like, well, they are describing me, but I know how this works. Like they'll say that, but then you'll get into the meeting and they'll be like, yeah, but you haven't done this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I, so they sent me this this amazing like sixty four page PDF that that Weta uh, document it was like a lookbook that Weta produced for Alcon. Wow. It's wow. kind of like a like a pitch document for the show, right? And they sent me that, and I looked through it, and the whole thing was like amazing. Like it just, I was immediately in love with it, and and I thought, well, this is amazing. I get to kind of interview for this, but I I really didn't think I would get it. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get this. So I, and the crazy thing is, I was traveling to Saudi Arabia like that week for a commercial with the guy who directed <laughs> Killing Lincoln with Adrian Moat. And, yeah. and uh, I'm like, okay, I can, so I actually, no, I went in, I went in and did an interview at the offices here and I met with a bunch of the, like Manny was there and the production designer and a couple of the American producers and the, and the director, Terry was there and uh, he was the producing, you know, producing director of the first uh, episodes. And he, you know, they, they obviously liked what I did and they were describing kind of what they were looking for. And I think I sort of ticked all the boxes for them of like, you've done documentaries, you've done music videos, you've done little indie features, you've done 
you know, I, I kind of had done all the things creatively that they were looking for in, in a, as a DP. They didn't want a television DP. They wanted someone from outside that world oh, cool. who could Very bring cool. these, these skill sets to it. So it turned into like, like an hour long conversation there. And, and at one point, one of the producers looked at my resume and said, well, I see you haven't done any episodic television. So how, how do you think you're going to do this? <laughs> Which was, a, I'm like, I was waiting for that question. And I'm like, well, I said, but I've done lots of like indie films and doc dramas and stuff like that, where you've got like three weeks to shoot something and it's like no time. And I've always managed to pull that off. Like, and, and then, and just as you're getting good and greased up as far as like a crew and momentum, then it's over. Right. Whereas I look, yeah. like if I had this opportunity, I now get to work with a team for like five months and like really get good and really kind of, and I, you know, I pitched it that way of like, you know, I know that when I, when I get into these kind of like high pressure or time demanding like projects, you know, I, I can get through it. I can do it, but then it, it always ends. Like it, just as you're kind of getting really kind of going, then it's over. I hate that. Yeah. It's the same thing, man. Whenever I'm on a set and you find your groove and you're like, why are we not still doing this? <laughs> like, yeah. And then it's over. So I, yeah. they, anyways, that turned into like a phone call. Like I, then I went to Saudi Arabia and then I had to have like a conference call at like 11 o'clock at night that time with the, people who ran Alcon and, you know, and Terry, the director really, he pushed for me. Cause I mean, I didn't know him, but he was from England and he'd cool. done some breaking bad and some, you know, his work was, you know, very good. And, and he, whatever it was, he saw something in my work. He's like, this is the guy. And he didn't know me, but he just, he really, cause all the other producers were like, who is this person? We don't know who Jeremy is. And, and I, I didn't have those credits to show I could do it, but Terry believed in me in some way and saw my work and that he connected with it. And he made the, he basically pushed them to, to hire me and, and that's how it worked. And, and then and they, within a few days I found out like, yeah, they want you. You're the guy. That's rad, dude. That's so amazing. That's great. I mean, yeah. the fact that your rental house was like, Hey, this is the dude. <laughs> Why? And it was just, it was funny. Cause it's like when they were describing what they were looking for, it's like, yeah, that is me like that. I don't know many people who have that skill set, And somehow I, I was the, the right person at the right time who fit that little jigsaw puzzle mold that they were trying to, to fill. And, you know, and then once I started working on the show and getting into the prep of it and, and actually like chewing into it, I started realizing that like everything that I had learned in 20 years of being in the business at that point was what I needed it. Like every little trick mm -hmm. and thing of everything was like, now I need all it, all that stuff I've collected in my brain. Now I need it. Cause like I have to use it all for the, to get through this. That's interesting. So you get hired, so you're picked up, and then how much prep time did you have? Did they just thrust you into an episode, or like? No, no. It was they had um, basically they had. I think it was they planned to have like eight weeks of prep because um, typically it would have been four, but mm -hmm. because of the extent of the builds of the sets and the fact that you know part of the pitch as well when I talked to them was that I knew that, that the lighting would have to be integrated, knowing what I'd seen of the style of the in the in the Weta like lookbook and understanding that it was going to be like spaceships and asteroid colonies and all these enclosed environments that you'd have to basically look everywhere that yeah. the lighting has to be built in. You know, we have to build the lighting in and it's, you know, it has to be led, you know, and that, and the production designer had already kind of done his own research and he's like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I agree with you. Like it has to be led. So he was like on my side too. He's like, we have to go led. And then I had to, I made the pitch to the producers like we're going to have to buy a ton of LED ribbon and install it into the sets. Like we're going to figure out how to do that. And so they realized that for in order to get ahead of the builds and to have 
the designs of the lighting work into the builds, I would have to be brought in like four weeks earlier than normal. That's awesome though. That's and really that's, cool. And, and it was critical. And that's, that set up the standard of how the show was made. So, and, and you know, we basically proved that this is the way to do it. And every season thereafter, that's how we did it. I would come in that far in advance because I had to be there when, because this the production designer and the set construction starts usually weeks before the DP even shows up. Right. So, yeah. and because it's so it's, you know, you're not building a, an apartment set with windows that you just shine lights through. It's like, we have to build the lights into the floor, into the wall, into the ceiling. And, you know, and that, that became, this is how we do it. You know, we build everything in. It must be great though. Like once you have all that stuff built into that set, I mean, you can virtually shoot 360 at that point. You're probably bringing in like a small unit here or there just for an highlighter. Or that's right. Yeah. We've, yeah. there's very little light that gets brought into the set. That's not part of the set. You know, it's usually like an highlighter, a, a fill or, or something, but yeah, I mean, we have complete like zonal control of the, of the set. That's great. Cause you must get a lot more coverage at that point. Like of, as of you're course. shooting. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it's always two cameras and we're always under the same pressure of you got to like go, go, go. And you got to like turn around and look this way. Like, and you got, you know, you got 20 minutes or less to like turn around a huge set. And it's, yeah, I mean, you, you to have that ability to instantly control like the whole set, you know, I mean, everything's run off of a dimmer board. Like we have mm-hmm. a, an amazing um, lighting console programmer named Ken Weeb and he's been with us since the first season and he's probably one of the best people in the country. And, you know, we were lucky to get him to start. And I think, you know, Ken, likes the show and he likes what we do and it's from a dimmer board perspective it's like it's the show to be on if you're into that because it's it's super programming intensive so you know (laughs) having having him and the sets designed the way they are it kind of lets you do anything that's so cool man that's like the dream position i love i mean my thing is like horror and sci-fi horror so one of the things that got me hooked on the show was looking at that trailer going, fuck, the sets look cool and the lighting is cool in the fucking sets. So uh, right off the bat, all that hard work just paid off in the trailer alone for me. Oh, that's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, that's that's cool that you, that you connected to that. Yeah, man. Um, so, okay, so the TV world's weird to me. So you get pulled on and who was the, so that they hired a director who was basically going to set the style for the series or just do a couple first episodes and then go from there. Like who sets the look, who sets the style for the show? Um, well, I mean, in that case, in this situation, and it does apply in other situations too, it was Terry. So Terry McDonough pretty much was, he had kind of been working with the producers for a few months before I even showed up. Right. He was, he was on board for a while figuring out what is the tone of this thing and how are we going to shoot it? You know, and he, he, uh, you know, he had a very big hand in, in, you know, the overall style. And even like the fact that we started using like the movie, you know, the movie was mm-hmm. Terry. I mean, I, I had used it once before on a, on a little feature I'd done just before that. And, you know, and as a Steadicam guy, I was kind of like, yeah, it's okay, but it's kind of quirky. And, but Terry had seen like all those like Vincent LaFleure video, you know, <laughs> films at the time. And he'd never used it, but he'd seen all these like, like demo films on the, on the web. And he's like, this is the tool. We have to use this thing. And I'm like, okay, well let's, and he, and Manny actually gave me the heads up before I had that interview. He said, are you familiar with, with the movie? I said, well, I've used it once. I, I know what it is. And he said, well, are you able to talk about it in the interview? Cause Manny, I think was, I think he knew Manny knew that I was the right guy for the job and he was trying to like, you know, tip the scales in my favor to try and get me to be the guy. Cause he realized that this is the person we should have. Yeah. So he said, look, when you go into that meeting, like Terry's going to ask you about the movie and stuff like that. And, and I, and I had used it before, so I could, I could speak from a place of, I know how to use this thing. And, 
um, the slingshot, which was like a carrying, you know, the rig to carry it. My friend Ray Duma, uh, he had actually helped design it with Walter Klassen here. Oh, so, cool. And I'd use that. So I'm like, I went into that meeting saying, it's the, it's the, if we're going to use the Moby, we have to use it with a slingshot because the operator can't carry it in their arms for like eight hours a day. Oh, Jesus. I mean, yeah. when the, when the movie first came out, I was like, you're just putting all that weight in the forearms and the front right. of your body. It's That's right. And Ray, Ray, who's like a steady cam, like mentor and colleague of mine, he got into the movie stuff before I did. And right away being a steady cam guy, I was like, well, you have to support this thing. You can't just carry it around in your arms. So he developed the slingshot system with Walter Klassen. And I pitched that. I came into the, that meeting saying, we have to use this tool. If we're going to use the Moby, and I said, look, I'm totally open to trying it. Like it's very, it's prototype technology, but I'm, I'm open-minded. Let's try it. Yep. And that was Terry. Terry really pushed for that. And that's now become like a signature thing for our show. And, and he even said it. He said, this will be the tool that makes this show different. It'll be the signature tool for the show. And he knew that he, like intuitively before we even shot anything. And, you know, four seasons later, it is the tool that makes our show what it is. Super cool, man. And so then how does the prep work as far as an episode goes for this stuff? Are you guys shot listing or storyboarding or doing any of that stuff ahead of time or does the schedule not allow for it? Are you just sort of making stuff up as you get well, on set? Well, shows are, each show is different. I, I, this, our show works, we do, um, we shoot two episodes in a block. So one block is two episodes. So uh, that director will come in and will basically be directing two episodes that are block, you know, block shot. Mm-hmm. you know, as, as two episodes together kind of thing. So when you're, that means you've got roughly, it's about eight or nine days, an episode or whatever. So times two, you end up, it's like three weeks ish of shooting roughly. So while that is shooting, there's another, the next director is prepping the next block. Got it. So they've got, got three it. weeks to prep and get ready for the next block. So in the first two seasons, I, I shot the whole thing by myself, which was insane. Jesus. But, that's what I, and I managed to get through it and I, it was a marathon and, but then by the third season I said, look, I can't do that anymore. Like if, if I'm going to be part of the show, I need another DP to, to share it with me. So the third season we went into alternating, which then meant that previously I would have to like meet with directors in the morning before work or at lunch or like on the weekend to, uh, to prep for the next episodes. Cause they basically be prepping the next episode without me. I'd be shooting and they're like in the office doing meetings and, stuff and I wouldn't really be around. And I realized that, you know, it was, it was obviously much harder for me to stay on top of things. And yeah. I felt that there were examples where the show suffered for it, where like a set wasn't quite exactly what we thought because I wasn't in that meeting or something changed and I didn't get told or whatever, like it happens. Right. So, you know, and the sh- our showrunner Narain was, he agreed, like, he's like, yeah, we have to have two DPs. Like, you know, so the third season we made it happen and then I could actually properly prep with each director. So now like I'm fully in that, that, you know, three week block while the other episode is, or two episodes are shooting. I'm actually properly prepping now with that, you know, the incoming director. So that's a much better way to do it. You're now literally in the office every day for, you know, those three weeks going to all the meetings with the director, going into storyboarding and, you know, and, you know, we started using, um, VR in our show, uh, in season three, the beginning of season three. Huh. So, uh, which was something that came out of our art department and they developed this VR system where we could basically go and tour sets that hadn't been built yet in VR. So I spent time in VR with the director as oh, well cool. to, to look at sets that we haven't built yet or existing sets that we have to like figure out some crazy like sequence that we haven't done before with like zero gravity or something that is going to require like modifying the set or opening up the ceiling or something. And we would go into VR and figure out the shots 
before we build the set or modify it or do whatever has to be done. And that's changed, you know, everything. So that whole thing about prep, you know, it's, it's the director's, generally speaking, you know, it, it's a good amount of time to prep. And that's assuming the scripts are on time because sometimes the scripts are behind, mm-hmm. which, you know, which then means your prep time is, you know, sometimes you're twiddling your thumbs. because like, well, we're waiting for the next draft of the script and you can't really, sometimes you're kind of in a holding pattern of like, what do we do next? Because we're waiting for that next draft of the script and we know it's going to change. So we can't really keep prepping until we know. So there's that kind of, sometimes you get ahead, sometimes you have to kind of wait and then you're kind of rushing because you get everything at the last minute. Yeah. But typically on our show, it's like, it's, you know, directors sign on to do two episodes at a time. Got it. Interesting. And so, uh, you guys develop the look, you develop the style early on. And then does that just become the sandbox that everybody has to play in? Cause now that you have other DPs, like, uh, how, how off the rails, like visually can you go for each episode or are you just sort of stuck to a certain set of rules? Like here's how the coverage should be for like a dialogue scene. Does it get that specific? no. Not necessarily. I mean, we, we certainly, um, you know, like when I brought, when I started bringing in the, the other DPs in, in, uh, season three, I, you know, I, I made it clear to them that it's like, there were people that I knew and trusted, like that I wanted to be part of the show. And, and I, I, I made it clear that like, I, I want you to have ideas too. Like I, you know, I've been the idea guy for two seasons now and <laughs> you know, if your episodes, you're going to have huge new sets that we've never been in before that you're going to have to like design. And, you know, obviously I'll, 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 you know, supervise and like look at your notes and whatever, but I want you to like, like think, you know, come up with your own ideas, like be creative and I don't want to hold you back. Like, you know, so, which was great because it injected some new ideas into like how we think about our spaceship environments or the different environments that we find ourselves in. Like I, I wanted those new ideas to come in. So we did, we tried different things and I think it still all fits within the, the spectrum of what our show is, but certainly, you know, new ideas were welcomed and, you know, we, we, they tried different things and, you know, coverage would be, would change depending on the director. And I think each episode has its own little flair and character depending on who the director was and like ideas they have with that DP, you know, and, and I've done things with directors where I would initially say like, ah, we don't normally do it that way. And they would make an argument for it. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's cool. I like that actually. And then I would go to the showrunner and say, look, we're thinking of doing this. And I would pitch it, you know, because it would be my job to go with the director to kind of like say to the, the, the showrunner, like, look, we've talked about doing this, whatever new idea. Like, I really think it's cool. Like I'm on board with it. And right. Right. And we would pitch it together and then convince the showrunner like that. Yeah. We're going to kind of break the mold here slightly, but it's, it works for this particular scene or story. That's cool. So then are you tasked with being the sort of visual continuity person for the whole season being the DP that's been on it this long? Yes. Yeah. And I, and I, it was something I hadn't really realized that was my job when I started. Like I, <laughs> the showrunner said to me early on, he said, listen, just remember that like, you are kind of like the visual gatekeeper of the show. And you know, that means you actually, you know, you have a certain power that, you know, don't forget it kind of thing that if, if something isn't working or there's a problem or, you know, you think there's something that's not being done in the vein of the show, like, you know, reach out to me. Cause he's obviously not always there. He's more often than not, not there. Cause he's dealing with the writer's room and stuff or, or, you know, editorial. And, right. um, so he was kind of reminding me, like, remember you are the, like I deputize you as like, you're the visual gatekeeper. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I have to remember that. And like, whenever I talk to like my American colleagues and stuff and people who work on, you know, sh- large shows in the States, they're like, Oh yeah. Like it's the DP. You have to remember like you're, you're in charge, man. Like you got to like, you're basically keep, keeping an eye out for the show. And if something's not working, 
you have the power to go to the producer and say, you know, we got to like deal with something here or there's a problem or whatever. Like, right. I had to remind myself of like, oh yeah, I have that. I am that guy. Like I have to do that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of my listeners are younger filmmakers and a lot of my listeners are people trying to get into the industry. Um, and I think they, the common misconception about cinematographers in general is it's like, oh, okay, so he's the guy that's just behind the camera and pushes, you know, the record button. Right. And, and they forget that a good portion of that job is very managerial and, and almost, you're, you're like the foreman of a crew at that yeah. point, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's something that I had to learn because up to this point, I hadn't done anything this big, you know, and I... I had to really learn the, um, because our show, you know, we have a full-time rigging crew that's like, they're there like Monday to Friday, like, or sometimes on weekends or at night or whatever. Right. And they're, it's like, it's like you have a shooting crew and you have your rigging crew. So you've, you've got your shooting crew, which you're managing them, but you're also thinking about what the rigging crew is doing. Cause they're working on the sets that you're going to be in like next week or tomorrow or like two weeks from now, Crazy. you're getting those sets ready for you. And there might be like a three-story set being built in the next studio over that you're got to kind of be on top of and know what they're up to and make sure they get the notes in advance. Cause I'll get the drawings like maybe a week or two before or three weeks in advance of that set being constructed. And then I'll use the VR world to go in and like figure out how I'm going to light this set in VR. I mean, I used to use SketchUp, but now it's VR. So it's, it's way better for me. That's and, cool. And then I have to get those notes. So I would spend my Sunday afternoons every Sunday would go through, like I end up with like a stack of drawings, like of all the blueprints for all the different sets and every weekend I would go home with this like stack of drawings and I go through them all and then make up my email of all my notes to every department rigging and everybody of what each set requires lighting wise. And that means like me drawing on the paper or whatever I do to like send them my little notes. And then they're, they're working like the, you know, the, the elves in the background are, they're always there. Like they're like the unseen crew. And I had to remember and learn how to kind of like, I really learned how to deal with that that resource of this, you have this other crew working for you. You've got your crew you're shooting with and there's another crew that, and you know, they have questions and they need to be, you know, you got to keep feeding them information so that they stay ahead of, of you. Cause they're always yeah. one step ahead of you. Wild. You know? So Wild. I, that, that I had to learn that, you know, thing. And also the whole like operating thing, like you touched on, like, you know, the cinematographer is the guy behind the camera pushing the button. But in my case, like now, like I come from the background of, you know, as an indie filmmaker, cinematographer, I was the guy who operated the camera. I did Steadicam. I was the, the person who did the physical camera operating. On a television show like that, you don't operate. You know, you've got two operators that basically run the floor for you. And which I realized is like, okay, I have to, I have to embrace this because I. That's the only way you can get through a show like that because you're like you said, you're a managerial kind of person where you're like, you get the shot up and running, you do the blocking you know, you figure out with the director kind of what the shots are, roughly where the camera should go. The operators are there with you. You kind of work out the dance of what's going to happen. And then I walk away because then I go immediately go to my gaffer and start talking about how we're going to get the scene lit. And I let the operators then figure out all the minutia of where to put, you know, where the track goes and all that other stuff because they know our style. And I just, I leave, I just, I walk out of the set and just leave them to it. I don't, I don't stick around and watch it because I don't have time for it. And then quite often I'm like, I'm walking, I'm leaving the studio, going to the next stage down the hall to look at the set we're moving to like tomorrow or, or whatever. Like I don't, I don't have time to actually be on the set to manage the, the specifics of where the camera goes, you know? So then I'll come back in 20 minutes and see how they're making out. And that, all that stuff I just mentioned is all the, you know, that logistical managerial administrative kind of role that you, that cinematography becomes when you get into stuff that's of that 
scale. And, you know, it's, um, I think that's, that's something that's, that I think needs to be taught more to younger cinematographers. And, you know, I've had this talk with people, you know, at the CSC and amongst our peers of like, you know, training, you know, up and coming filmmakers. It's that, it's that position that I think, you know, people who get into cinematography now, it's obviously very easy to pick up a camera and shoot something and you can create amazing images very easily. And people have amazing reels of stuff that they can shoot on their own or in small productions. But it's that, it's that next step of like, well, how do you actually run like a, like a 30 person crew? Yeah. Yeah. It, that's, that's the hard part. And that, I think, you know, there's, that's where people could benefit from the, you know, some kind of training of, of, cause I had to kind of learn it by osmosis over time. And then on the show I had to kind of, you know, cause I also came from a, a very, um, you know, as, as all of us have done, you all start on an indie level. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one starts at the top. You all start, you know, you music videos or indie shorts or whatever you do, but you always have this generally, at least for me, I came from this world of like being super resourceful of like how much equipment should I order? And like, right, you know, right. how many lights can I get? And like, you know, you're used to like production managers saying, Oh, we can't, we can only afford half of what you asked for. Like, you know, can you cut it back kind of thing? So you, I was, that's my like, default mindset but when you get into a show of the size of like expanse you know time is important more than what equipment costs so you know i learned early on that my rigging team they'd look at my drawings and they'd be like well you know we see what you're doing here you've asked for like six lights to be hung here but really we think you actually need like 10 or you should have actually have 16 because and they would like double or quadruple what i was asking for because i was always coming from like do it as like where as little stuff as possible. Right, right. And, and they've done this before and they're like, and they've worked on like big, you know, big productions and they're like, actually, but what if you need to turn around and look over here? Like the lights have to already be there. You can't, you can't, because my plan is like, oh, I'll just move these lights over here when we turn around. Like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to like, it has to all be there in advance, right? <laughs> so then I kind of learned that like, okay, whatever, whatever they recommend, just do it. Like, because then you realize that they, they've been here before. <laughs> they, yeah. they know like you're going to need like twice as much of what you think you do. You know, and it's me with my like trying to save money brain going like, oh, I'm trying to save the money. But, you know, on a show like that, they're paying like like whatever, like a one day a week or whatever on gear. It doesn't matter at that point to get all the stuff you need so that we're not waiting on the day to like, like get the next shot going. All right, gang. So now's the time to do a little bit of housekeeping uh, and show some love to our sponsors because without these guys and girls, we would not have a podcast. Uh, I would not be able to be here giving you this raspy, sexy, worn voiceover. <laughs> uh, all right, let me let me just get right into it. Uh, first up, as always, our uh, sponsors that have been with me since the beginning, the guys that uh, fully support my work, fully support the show, Puget Systems. So if you are in the market for a brand new computer, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a sound engineer, uh, and your old uh, Mac Pro is not cutting it anymore, and you log on to their website and try to find the specs for a new system, a system that will do more than what your old system would do, and you find that price tag to be astronomical, and you are thinking to yourself, how the hell? Do I make a profit having a company when I'm continuously in debt to these guys? Uh, That's what I thought about when I was doing it. um, And I just went, you know what? It's time. I'm going to switch to PCs. Now, I know. I know that's a really tough thing to say. 
I know some of you guys get all sweaty about it. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, it doesn't make a difference. Both machines do the same exact thing. Both machines have operating systems that are folder-based. They're very simple to navigate. Uh, I think the most difficult thing was that the command button and the control button were different places on the keyboard. You know what I'm saying? Uh, here's the big benefit of being on a PC, though, is that you can custom build your hardware to specifically work for your software. And this is a big deal because a lot of these uh, different software programs that exist out there require different hardware specs for them. So it's getting harder and harder to just buy one specific piece of hardware that does the perfect thing for everything. So like if you're, for instance, if you're an After Effects person, there is a very specific hardware setup that works perfectly for After Effects. Uh, if you're a Premiere person, there's a hardware setup that works for that. Uh, you can find a way to work in between, find like a good middle ground for all that stuff, but you have unlimited options out there. So building a PC just is smarter, it's cheaper, uh, you're not paying for advertising costs, you're not paying for marketing costs, which brings the prices down for that stuff dramatically. Um, so I would definitely look into it, definitely look into to making a PC. Now, maybe you're a gamer, maybe you have a history of building computers like I did when I was growing up, um, and so maybe you wanna jump into that marketplace. Check out Puget Systems, because Puget Systems has been running benchmark tests for ages now. And they actually run uh, these tests using the software and the hardware to figure out if that new card on the market actually gives you more speed and which is better for certain programs, okay? Um, but as I got older and as I start to get more into doing what I love to do, which is directing movies, and uh, that's my focus, I don't want to be tech support for whatever editors I'm working with, forever's using the systems. And one thing that was great about Apple was that you buy it, you open it, you set it up, good to go. And that's what I was looking for. So in my hunt, I came across Puget Systems, which is a fantastic company, um, very small family-owned business, um, but super professional. They've been doing this for over 15 years. They have relationships with Adobe. They have re relationships with the hardware manufacturers. Um, and they put together solid systems that you literally do the same thing. They ship it to you, you open up, you set it up, you turn it on. It's the jam. Um, and I have had two of them. I have cut all my movies on a PC from Puget Systems. Uh, and if you're interested, go to their website, Puget Systems. Blah, blah, go to their website, PugetSystems.com. Uh, there you can shop by selecting the software that you use. So it's super easy. Um, and then they'll give you sort of a baseline system that you can then customize. I love it. I can't say enough really good things about it. Uh, going back to PC really changed my creative workflow in post-production. And strangely, it got a lot easier. It got a lot fucking easier. Uh, so if you're looking for a new computer, I highly suggest you go check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. Next up, good buddies over at Rule Boston Camera. If you're a young director, if you're a cinematographer, if you're a photographer, um, and you're having a lot of trouble keeping up with the trends, and you're trying to buy the newest piece of equipment, you go out to NAB, and you're like, how the fuck am I gonna afford this next camera? I, I, I barely paid off the last camera, and my clients always want the newest and greatest thing, right? I just gave up on that. Uh, what I do is I rent. I own lenses, I own gear that will last, and that will stand the test of, will stand the test of time. Uh, believe it or not, 
the, the equipment that I own that has done really well for me uh, and the stuff that I've had the longest are fucking C-stands. Uh, so that shit doesn't change, you know? Uh, but when it comes to cameras and it comes to the new tech, I just rent. And I highly suggest you go form a relationship with your local rental house. It's a lot easier than you think. Uh, you can go in there. These guys will have access to all the latest and greatest equipment. Uh, they'll teach you how to use it. I know Rule has uh, training seminars. They love independent filmmakers. They love giving back to the community. Um, so if you're on the East Coast and you're looking for a good rental house and you're looking for a place that will support you as a filmmaker, uh, check out Rule.com, Rule Boston Camera. All right, enough with the plugs. I cannot wait to get back to the show because I'm completely fascinated. Here we go. It's such a weird thing. It's a fascinating thing because I come from the same world that you do, where you're indie, and, and I started as a shooter myself and then sort of made my way into directing. And sure. when I shot, I would find, especially at the beginning levels, you're sort of getting your hands on the camera and you're sort of getting your hands on all the lights and you're trying to figure out your language as a storyteller and you're trying to figure out, okay, this is what I enjoy and this is how I like to see things and this is how I like to light folks and all that stuff. And then it feels like once you get into a situation like you're in where uh, you're suddenly even more managerial than, than normal where you are dealing with a rigging crew, you're dealing with all these folks, it must have been a really hard thing for you to just sort of walk away and let your camera operators sort of do that stuff at the beginning. Was it difficult for you? Uh, or? It, it, it was maybe a little bit at first, but I, I very quickly realized that that's the only way I was going to survive it. Like I have to, this is how it's going to be. Like I, for me to get through this and to actually perform at that level to stay on top of, you know, the demands, I, I have to let other people take over and sort of embrace that, that delegating of, of, of letting people take some of that, um, responsibility because I can't do all of it. You know, it's that you have to kind of let go of that feeling of like, I have to control everything, you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah Cause you can't, sure. you can, and you have to, you know, you, you, you kind of try and set up a, a system, I guess, where people understand your, your aesthetic and your tastes and that kind of thing and let them kind of like make decisions for you or come to you and say, Hey, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? And you're like, yeah, that's great. Do that. You know? And, and, right. and that's like my rigging guy for Gary is like that. I mean, Gary, know has been with us since day one and he's like the brains behind you know keeping lighting all the sets and building all the custom led stuff we make and like he's the guy behind all that and now we're at a point with gary now where i used to kind of do all these like you know i would draw on the plans with like color-coded markers and i'd you know <laughs> make in photoshop like write down all where i wanted everything to be placed lights and everything now gary will get the drawing and he'll come to me and he's drawn on it and he'll like this is what i'm thinking i'm gonna do for the set Cool. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Or I might like add one thing, but like Gary's already got it figured out ahead of me because he knows what I'm going to ask for. That's so, cool. I mean, that's the, that's that. So you've been working with this guy for a while or is it? He's been with us since the first season. Yeah. I met Gary for the first time in season one. So I, I didn't God, know. That must have been so, that must have been so nerve wracking, right? Because did you, were you able to bring any of your crew onto the show or was it all new folks? Pretty much all new. I brought on, um, uh, Craig, my, my B camera focus puller has been my focus puller for a long time. And I, we go back like 20 years. And so I brought him on and Jason, our a camera operator, uh, who's the guy that I trained with Steadicam. Uh, and he's been working with me for several years now and he's excellent. Uh, he came on as the, as the B camera operator to start. 
because he hadn't had a lot of a camera experience and yeah you know and i knew the show was big and he wasn't comfortable taking on the a camera role on a show of that size but now he's the a camera operator now he has been for the last couple seasons or since season two actually cool so cool. he proved himself and then like and now you know jay is like one of the core people on the show like he's such a part of the show and you know so now those are really the only people i i brought on everybody else was was new to me and it's funny because most of the people on the show didn't know who i was even though I'm, I'm from toronto and i'm in the same circle as them i wasn't doing the kind of shows they were doing i wasn't in long, long format as much as they were so they all assumed i was from out of town they thought i was from la or something because they'd never seen me before fascinating fascinating so then i'm, I'm I, I love this dynamic when you first work with teams and it, i don't know if it's the same in television but i know at least in the indie world there could be a lot of posturing and, and people are trying to figure out uh folks was it was it that way for you did you have to prove yourself at all or did you just come in and it was just a very easy transition i did i did find maybe it was self-imposed i did i did feel like i had to prove myself i felt like i had to gain their respect somehow you know i sort of felt like i these people have all done much bigger things than i have right, you know right. and here i am this guy with like some ideas for how to do this and I, everything i would do i'd be like i'd show them my little sketch of what i was thinking for a set and i'm like this is what i'm thinking of doing like what do you think like i was always kind of deferring like you know i think this is what i should do like, this is what i think you know my plan is and you know and they would look at like, oh yeah that's cool and so i was i was always trying to uh i guess know that i was the there was a respect there. Cause I'm like, I don't, do they, do they respect me? Like, they don't know who I am. Like I'm right. I'm kind of inexperienced in this situation. And, you know, so I felt a little vulnerable that like, are they going to think I'm a fake? Am I, am I, you know, am I out of my depth here? And, you know, but very quickly, I think as we started working, you know, you start, there's little cues you get with people where you, you know, that they know that you're kind of on the same page and it's slowly the respect was there. And, and I'm also like, I think I'm known as someone who's very even, healed and and like yeah. collaborative on set and very respectful and so i don't think i i don't think there was that vibe of me being some kind of like you know prima donna or you know aggressive or short-tempered or any of that kind of thing so it i think it kind of allowed for people to um kind of get to know me really quickly and and feel comfortable with me and know that i was collaborative and i would take suggestions and you know, because then that's that's the key is when you when you got like you know your gaffer or a grip or someone working closely with you and they'll come up and like kind of whisper in your like hey like that reflection back there does that bother you like you know yeah, that yeah. they're there they're looking out for you and they're and they're trying to feel out if if that's your thing do you and maybe you like the reflection or maybe that that little flare or that hot thing on the wall is is your taste but they because they're not sure yet they'll come up and say hey is that you know it shows that they're paying attention they're looking and yeah. they're they're trying to, they're looking out for you and you know they want you know, they're not trying to sabotage you or whatever. And I think once you get over that fear of, of when you don't know someone of like, are they, do they have my back that, that you then it becomes, you know, a very positive thing. And, you know, that's why most of the people on our show have been there since the first season, you know, we all kind of went up the, you know, we did it together. And, and now there's that really great like spirit of like, we, we all kind of have each other's backs. Yeah. That, see, and it's all about setting the right tone. And it sounds like that's what you did in the beginning is sort of set this tone of being a collaborator. Um, and I find that's the same thing with directing where like you come into a scenario and you have all these folks that you're hopefully conveying whatever the fuck it is that's in your brain right. <laughs> to these people, you know, and it's that whole communication thing. And then dealing with that fear, uh, which this it's so interesting how you handle that because th there is that level of like, 
maybe I don't have this experience and holy shit. And I know that this is this way for, for most of us, you know, like, and if you're challenging yourself enough and you're, you're rising the ranks the way you should, you're supposed to be feeling that. Yeah. I um, think, I mean, it's that whole, I mean, as a Mark Zuckerberg or whoever said it, like, you know, do something that scares you every day or whatever that phrase is. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, not that I live by that, but I certainly believe there is something to that, you know, that you, that when you feel that feeling of like a little bit of fear, like, you know, there's, you're, you're on the right path, you know, that that's like, you're, you're pushing the, your limits of like, can I do this? And, you know, um, and I think also like what you were saying about directing that, you know, and it goes for what, what I do as well, because I've seen examples of this so many times where that's not done well, or someone doesn't handle that situation well. Right. And, and you can see like, there's a, there's a, a, a tangible withdrawal from the crew. Like the people will withdraw from someone who's, who's like that when someone's like, um, you know, snappy or short tempered or, you know, condescending or belittling or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. not respectful to the people that are around them as, as in it, when you're in a position of power as a director or as a DP, you see people withdraw from that. Like they'll stop oh, yeah. making suggestions. They'll, they'll kind of like just stand there with their arms folded and not say anything. And like suddenly it becomes very much a work to rule environment. But if people feel like they're included and, and it's, and it's positive and, and, and there's a respect for people in general that people are much more, uh, you know, um, generous with contributing and being like, you know, solving problems in advance, being proactive. When, when you become sort of like the dick, <laughs> people, people don't help. They'll just still step back. And, okay, buddy. Like, you know, you make fall in your own face kind of thing. Like you can see it. You can, you see, can see it. I, 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 I always it. see it on set when people walk over and they go, so where do you want this? <laughs> yeah. Like when you hit that point, you're like, okay, someone's fucking up. Like, yeah. <laughs> but when someone, and when, and when they like, when they, when people genuinely like you and they, and they, they, they're there for you, they'll, they'll be like, Hey, like, you know, can, can I move that thing for you? Or, or, you know, are you okay with that back there? Or like, what if we did this? Do you like this? And it's like, then they're actually suggesting stuff and they're coming to you with, to solve problems before they're a problem, you know? And that's, and that's only that only happens if you're if you create a positive atmosphere on your in your set. Yeah, and it's got to be interesting for the directors that come on, especially if how many directors have been on the show? Is it is it oh, more than five or? Oh, more than five for sure. I mean, we're at this a, a ten or more. I mean, we've ha- we've had the same few that keep coming back every year, and then there's always some new ones. But it's got to be at least ten. I, I'd have to count, but it's got to be somewhere in that number in that range. That's got to be strange walking into like an already well oiled machine. As a, yeah, as somebody. I, I wouldn't envy them. I, 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 you know, I look at that role and I'm like, that's a tough job. Like I wouldn't want that job to be that, to be a, you know, a series director. I mean, obviously they've developed a thick skin for it. They know how to handle these things, but the idea of walking into a, a, a set where you're the new guy or new woman or whatever, and, and everyone here knows each other, it's all a big family. And yeah. are there maybe like weird, you know, quirks of dysfunctionality that you're going to figure out as you get in there and you're just suddenly like dropped into it you got to just like go and do your job like that i don't know i don't know how it's it's one of those things that when i look at that from as a dp perspective and i watch them come into that i i feel for them and i'm like i want to do everything i can to try and make them feel at home and welcomed and whatever because like it's like i can't be easy like yeah yeah. gotta be a hard position to be in yeah, it's fascinating. I, and it's interesting to hear, I mean, because essentially, once a showrunner gets it approved and once there's a budget, it becomes its own little weird factory. It's like this, you're pumping out as much content as you possibly can at the highest level that you possibly can. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's also interesting too, and maybe you can ask this question, maybe you can't, because when I watch certain shows, like, you know, 
now that Netflix is all over the place and you start to watch uh, like the Marvel shows and stuff like that, you start to find their rhythm. And being a filmmaker, watching that, it's like, okay, so obviously they have, they're blowing their budget at like the first two episodes for the fight. And then there's like three episodes that take place in a warehouse. <laughs> and so it must, like a lot of the writing for the show must really uh, be affected by what the show's budgets are. You know, they have like bottle episodes and then do you, are, are they constantly doing that on your show where it's like, look, uh, let's, let's do five or six more scenes on this set. Cause we have this set, you know? Uh, yeah, well, we, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly, our show is very, um, resource conscious in that way in the yeah. sense that, you know, our sets often get turned into other sets or we'll, you know, the writers will write scene specifically because we know we, we built the set and it's there now and we, you know, we have to make use of it, you know? So certainly we try and make the most use out of the sets that we build. Um, if we're going to build some giant set, but it only appears in, you know, a few scenes in one episode, that set's going to be turned into something else. Like it's going to be redressed, repainted, like right, right, right. completely redone to be something different, you know? So we, we very much like rebuild or it gets taken apart and because everything we build is modular for the most part, like it's all CNC machine, like cut wood and stuff like that. Right. And metal and cool. it's all, it's like Lego. So you can literally rebuild it as a different thing. So we we're always reusing um, elements of things we built before, you know, from previous sets that are now some, you build it in a different shape and now it's a new set, you know? So it's, that's how we, that's how we make our show without, you know, blowing the budget. That's cool, man. And, and is there much, there probably is. Is there are you guys doing anything on location, or is it all set stuff, backlot? Um, no, we do, we go on location. Uh, I mean, the previous seasons has been typically one or two days, an episode. I mean, because we have the Earth component, right? There's the Earth storyline, right? Which right, typically, right, right. you know, that's we actually shoot that on outside somewhere because we want to kind of provide that that um, that change of 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 environment. So you know, because most of it's in spaceships or asteroid colonies or that kind of thing. And like, you know, so when we go to earth, we really go to earth. Like we see outside and trees and blue sky and stuff that you don't see anywhere else in the show, just to kind of give you that visual, you know, break from the sort of the confines of space and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and, and then this season we went outside even more, you know, so that's, it, it is, we do go outside, but not as much, but season four, we went out a lot more. So, and that's for people who've read the books, they'll know where that goes. And I won't say more than that, but they, there, there's a there's more more outside in season four. Cool. And it, is there a different? Is there a big difference in pace for between like a like a studio day, a set day, and like a location day? Uh, you mean in terms of pace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, shooting wise. Sure. I mean, it's you know, obviously, I mean, location days are more expensive for one thing because there's the cost of moving a unit and like the pre rigging and all the support you need for like a location. So there's that factor and depending on what the location is, um, you know, we're going into like a new place all of a sudden, like now you got to light it and all that stuff from scratch. Whereas, you know, a lot of our sets, we can kind of walk into it and turn the dimmer board on and like the set is lit, you know, for the most part. <laughs> right, right, well, right. There's certainly, it can take longer to be ready on a, a location day, depending on what it is. Um, you know, cause it's, it's kind of a one-off thing or maybe you're there for two days, but it's, you know, our sets, that we go back to a lot, you know, they've been established. Like we don't have to kind of figure out how we're going to light it every time we go in there necessarily. So, um, there's a time savings there. That's cool, man. That's really cool. So, um, Oh, the other stuff I wanted to talk to you about is just 
there's a lot of challenges that come with shooting space stuff. And, yeah. you know, your set and, and shooting would be one thing if there was gravity all the time. Yeah. But you guys go into zero gravity shit. That, yeah. that, that must drastically change things when you're in that mode, right? For sure. And, and we deal with gravity in different ways. You know, we, sometimes we go full zero G where you really see like people are floating and things are floating and like you really go all the way. And sometimes it's implied where we're saying, you know, we're in zero G now, but we've got this, um, you know, conceit that they have, you know, mag boots that the, they can basically stick their feet to the floor with magnetic uh, boots that as they walk, they release and they, and they attach, you know, as you walk. Right, and right. and so we can kind of say, well, we are in zero G right now, but no one's floating. But but we we remind the audience that you're floating by you know we have the camera kind of just slowly roll on the third axis. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like suggesting that there's the room is slightly rotating, but like really ever so slowly. And we'll, we'll have both cameras, like A and B, if it's two cameras, are both doing that. And we might have like one, you know, in CG, we'll add like one thing floating in the background, right? Something to remind you that it is zero G, but it's super. That's like, that's like the the lowest level of zero G, and then we go all the way to like someone on wires floating, and it's completely zero G, and they're like floating in, in like in midair kind of thing. So they, you know, obviously that end of the spectrum is much harder to do and more time consuming. Um, and then you know, the, the other version of it, where like the most simple one, I was just saying, is you know when you're doing that, making sure that like everyone's hair, like women's hair, has to all be tied back, obviously. Anything right. like buckles or zippers on outfits have to all be like tucked in or down. And then there's the whole thing of like movement of like the actors have all had movement coaching so that, you know, when you're standing there, you can't just have your arms kind of hanging at your side. Like you have to kind of forget about all those conventions of what we do naturally here with, with <laughs> gravity. It's like, you can't just have your arms like kind of hanging at your side. You have to have them either float. So, you know, our lead cast, they've all figured this out now that they will put their hands in their pockets or cross their arms or they all have their own thing that they do so they don't have to stand there with their arms floating at their sides. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it's these little tricks that that you figure out after you've done how many episodes. Yeah, they're like, they're like, I'm not going to do an entire day of a scene standing there with my arms floating at my side. So I'm just going to cross my arms. And now that, you know, that deals with that issue of your gravity arms. <laughs> it's like when actors are like, I'm not going to eat food this sequence. It'll just sit there because I don't feel like eating it. For yeah, exactly. I mean, sure. It's, it's you know, it's it adds to the the mental energy of the scene of like, now I have to actually stand there and float my arms around the whole time, you know? So we, we try to, we try to avoid it unless we really have to, cause it's, you know, it's hard, it's harder for everybody. Okay. So here's a question for you. Um, when you get a script and you start to go through a script, is there a certain type of sequence that, that still like makes you roll, like not roll your eyes, but just sort of get nervous about it. So is it like an action sequence? Is it like just a straight dialogue sequence? Is there a sequence that you read in the script that you're like, Oh God, okay, we got to do talking about this show particularly. Yeah. 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 Um, well, anything that involves multiple people in zero gravity is always a challenge because you're dealing with, you know, wires and often there's, there could be helmets involved. Anything with helmets is an added thing because, you know, the helmets are, are an added, um, complexity, yeah. you know, cause oftentimes, I mean, we're really just doing like, you know, character drama in a sense, like people having a conversation, but they happen to be floating in zero gravity wearing helmets, you know? So you really want to make it, we don't want to make it about the techiness of it. It's really about the emotion in these characters and everything else is just kind of background to that, but we still have to do it with them in helmets floating on wires, but make it seem like it's just two people having a conversation. Right. So it's like, okay, we want to make this really 
down to earth, simple kind of in that sense, but we're going to have to deal with the, act- the actors are wearing helmets and the helmets, we, you know, our helmet systems are all a whole, that's a whole thing where it's like they have their own lighting systems. They have their own air supplies. There's microphones in there. There's wireless uh, contacts for them to hear each other and for us to talk to them. All that's controlled wirelessly. It's all in a backpack. And sometimes the, the wires are fiddly and something goes wrong. So it always takes more time. They need breaks. They have to take the helmets off every so often because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable after a while. And they're usually wearing like full neoprene, like kind of like spacesuit things too, right? So they're wearing their back suits. So yeah, all that stuff. And then if, on top of that, if they're actually in zero G, then they're actually either on a, on a, like a teeter totter rig or they're floating on wires, which that has a certain fatigue factor to it. So all those things combined, it means that for me, when I'm lighting it, I have, you know, I, I don't always get to have the actor in the exact spot I want to see them the whole time I'm setting up the shot because it would mean we'd have to actually have someone on a wire floating there the whole time. Right, right, right. So you kind of have to know, okay, I'm going to have to light this kind of without necessarily that person being there and kind of just from experience and having done it a bunch of times now, I just sort of know how to set up. So when I read those scenes, it's like, okay, that's going to be a bit of a thing like doing that, you know, and, or environments that are written. The other thing, and this applies to anything, not just expanse, but any environment that's written to be like pitch black. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's always the hardest. It's like it literally, like you know, a moonless night exterior, you know, or whatever. That's the thing where you you're trying to light something and not make it look lit, but it has to look like it's pitch black, but you can still see something. But there's no light source, so anytime you put a light in there, as soon as you put a light into that, it's like you've instantly tipped your hand of like, oh, that's that's lit because there's a light shining on that thing, you know. And it's like for me, that's always the hardest challenge from a when I read a script and there's mention of of um, like pitch black environment, like walk into a room and it's pitch black. Or, you know, the power's gone out in this, in this ship and every deck is pitch black and all they have is like flashlights. It's like, I have to usually put something in there so that you see the architecture. But if it's an enclosed environment, how do I do that without seeing the light coming through the walls? You know, it's that stuff. And I, I mean, so every time, every one of those scenarios I approach differently, depending on what it is, but whenever I read that stuff, I always go like, oh, I gotta, that's going to be a tough one. (laughs) <laughs> I can only imagine. That's 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 actually really interesting. I well, love if you said you do horror, it. right? Like you do. If you're doing horror stuff, then I mean, it's that's the same. I mean, yeah. Horror films that can do that well for me are always like the best when you can actually somehow do dark and like the pitch black kind of environment and not not make it look lit. It's like exactly. one of the hardest. Exactly. 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 I mean, the last film I did, uh, my buddy uh, cinematographer David Kruda shot it, and we did a bunch of stuff with flashlights. And I was completely fascinated with the idea of uh, how we just use flashlights basically as our main source. We had a couple things in the background, but nothing yeah. else. And then it just sort of came down to like what the actors were shining their flashlights on to get reflections and when we were seeing their faces and when we yeah. weren't seeing their faces. Right. It became like this really fun blocking with light yeah. uh, for those sequences, which I love. I love that shit. I mean, at horror, we can get away with a lot. You know what I mean? Like this... There's a lot of shit. Like, I, I mean, I was watching, um, oh, God, the Eve, the Ash versus Evil Dead show. And the first couple episodes are great because Sam Raimi, I think, did the first one. Okay. And he, ha- he had this whole sequence where, like, 
these creatures attack two cops and a, fla- a flashlight falls on the floor and the flashlight's just spinning and it's spinning for like an abnormally long amount of time. <laughs> and it's creating this. But it looks cool. Oh, it looks rad. You know, yeah. it's, it's creating this moving light thing. And you're, as an audience member, you're like, obviously that fucking flashlight does not spin for that amount of time, but it looks fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, and I think in horror, you can get away with that, you know? Sure. You know, I, I've always loved the old Ridley Scott story of like when he did uh, Blade Runner and he you're in that Tyrell sequence where he goes and meets Tyrell for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and you walk into that room and he's got those fucking water reflection light things all over the place, all over yeah, the walls. Right, right, and right. I, I think the story is that the gaffer came to him or one of the lighting guys came to him and said, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> there's no, there's no water in the space. And he goes, cause I fucking said so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I love that. I think if you set up the rules to your world, uh, that way ahead of time, then you can get crazy with it. It's fine. You can. And, it, and then you can also, it can also allow you to get out of those tricky situations. Like I was saying with the, you know, with the, the pitch black environment or whatever, you know, like how do you work around that? Like how can you work something into that, into that environment to, to solve that problem in a way that's not going to like bump on the audience? Yeah, exactly. And then you forget, I think a lot of folks forget that the human eye is like the ultimate camera device. And even though you step into a room and it's pitch black, it's usually pitch black for like a half second. Yeah. And then your your eyes are like doing that extreme adjustment that they do. And you're like, oh, yeah. the LED on the back of that fucking DVD player is suddenly illuminating this whole room. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. But that's the trick to that, though, is then how do you translate how your brain sees that into like putting that in front of a camera and making a camera look like what your brain sees. You know, that's the hard, yeah. that's the hard part. Cause as soon as you try and do it to make a camera, see it, like you got to put a light source somewhere that you don't want to make it look like there's a light source there, you know, that's, that's doing it. So that's always the trick of like, yeah, I can see why that would be difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always want to try to me. It's like, I want to make it look as real as I can so that an audience isn't going to look at that and go, like, Oh, there's a light like right there. Like they put a light there for sure. You know, it's like, I don't, that to me is like, I don't, I want to try and hide my, my, you know, my hand as much as I can. Yeah. I mean, and especially these days where the competition visually on television is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like the, the stuff that's out there right now. And you're just like, Jesus, you guys shot this in how much time? Well, the funny, it's funny. Great. I just, I just did a, a podcast with a Boris Mazovsky, who's a cinematographer, a friend of mine. And he's, he shoots Titans here in Toronto. Oh, cool. And he, did, he did 12 monkeys and he's extremely talented and, we were talking about this exact thing the other day and he was saying, he said, you know, he said, is, is like, is it too good now? Like, is it, is it too good in the sense that like, when we look at what we're doing now in television, is it too good? Because now we, like, we're showing what we can do in like eight days or nine, whatever it is like per episode. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, now that's expected of like, that's now what you have to always deliver to. Like, is it too, is it, does it need to be that good? You yeah. know, should it be that good? You know, is it, is it, does the material deserve that kind of level of visual, you know, you know, splendor or whatever. Right. I mean, and a lot, you know, a, a lot of that comes down to the technology, obviously. I mean, I, I think that the most amazing sort of technology advances that have happened over the past couple of years have been lights and lighting and like wireless LEDs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. All that stuff is absolutely outstanding. And you can see that in a lot of the productions these days, but yeah, it's a good point. You know, like there, there is still something to be said about and I think it's just a trend. You know, these these trends come and go. And I think there'll be someone that comes along and reinvents it. And suddenly, you know, we're back to like the 70s rough and gritty and, and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also it's also now because, you know, there's more money now in, in television, you know, yeah. for the most part. So now it's like, well, we can't afford to 
to put more lights in here and we can, you know, we can build the set bigger and cooler and, you know, there's, there's more resources there. So, I mean, it shows up on the screen, you know, and it's like, and we're, we're constantly able because of those, you know, resources, we can somehow make it fit in the time that we have, even though it's always like some kind of work of magic that we do it, but it somehow happens. So when you uh, first get the show, there must've been a lot of excitement. Like I got booked. This is great. You throw yourself into it. You're thrust into it. You're working like ridiculous hours and you're pushing through it. And then you're on like season three and you're like, fuck, I'm still working this thing and doing this thing. Like, how do you stay? Well, two questions. One, what is your work week or period like? Like how often do you work and how often do you not work? And then two, how do you fucking stay sane? <laughs> what do you, mean, you mean when I'm on Expanse specifically or? Yeah, on like a long running show like Expanse. I think that's the way to do it. Well, I, I would, you know, when I'm shooting, I mean, I'm, I'm working five days a week, you know, so, and they're like, you know, we do 12 hour days typically plus the hour for lunch. That's 13 hours. Mm-hmm. And then typically I need, I have a bit of time afterwards where I have to go sit with the DIT and just go through the footage and make sure everything's right before we send it off to the lab. So that's, you're maybe looking at like 14 hours that's not including maybe the time I come in early to kind of, cause I have to come in for pre-calls cause I don't really, our sets often, we don't have time to like pre-light them. Right. So it's like, I usually ask for a pre-call where I'll go in for an hour before the day to get the set ready with my gaffer and the dimmer board uh, with Ken. So, you know, that's, it could be a 13, 14 hour day, like on average, it's never really much shorter than that. So that's Monday to Friday, five days a week. And we typically, by the time you get to the end of the week, of course, you're starting a bit later every day. So it's like you start at like 11 or noon on a Friday or whatever. So you're getting home at like one or two in the morning or three in the morning on a Saturday. Yeah. And then you're back to work at 7 a.m. on Monday. Yeah. So Saturday is like the day to just relax, like not think about the show, like swim, do the laundry. You know, my partner Francis and I will go get have dinner that night. Something like just be super relaxed, see friends if I can. And then Sunday is like spend the afternoon prepping for the next week, like go through all my drawings, make my notes for the rigging teams and everything. And then back at it. So I'll, that's what it'll be for like months that that schedule will be like that for months. And then it's like, if I'm, you know, favorably I'm alternating with another DP, but even when I'm in the office doing like the off, like I'm prepping, I'm still there from like nine in the morning till like seven or eight o'clock at night every day, you know? So it's like, it's not as long of a day, but it's still kind of a long day you know and at least i can come home like on a reasonable time on a friday you know so you kind of have a bit more of a life in that sense but i mean still over the course of like five months or whatever it is like i mean we typically shoot for anywhere between 17 and 20 something weeks um you know so and then plus the prep on top of that before we even start shooting you know which is another like five you know eight weeks or whatever yeah yeah so i mean it, it really is all consuming like you you don't you don't really have um you know, you don't see your friends, you don't really see your family. And, you know, it, it really is like by the end of it, you get, you think like, you know, I, it reminds you that you have to really enjoy the material that you're, you're working with to want to keep doing it. I mean, the expanse is such a rich thing for me and the, and the people and, and everything about it is, is so rewarding that it's, it's, it's allowed me to keep coming back. And, and I've always looked at it. It's like, well, there's been offers to do other things in between and I've been able to do things in between and things that would conflict with it, it's like, well, it has to be at least as good as The Expanse. Like, right, I, right. if it's not as good as it, and I'm not that interested in it, then it's like a it's like a lateral or a downward step. Like, it has to be at least as good. Like, that's the bar for me. Like, it has to at least be that good, you know? And it's like, so, you know, it's it's there is that to stay sane and, and all that. I mean, you have to be, 
you have to be engaged in the in the content because it's like you're living it. You're living in that world for five or six months. You have to really drink the Kool Aid and fully buy into the world. You know, if you don't believe in it, it becomes a drudgery. Like you might as well work in a car factory at that point. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's it, not the car factories are bad, of course, but no, I'm no, just no, saying no, it's no. like yeah. it's it, it's not it's not creatively rewarding work. If that's what you're seeking, it's not creatively rewarding work. If you're not really into the material, because you're, you, you're spending so much time with it. You know, you're, you're living that story for months, you know, and it's, you, you have to really love it. Otherwise, you know, it just becomes work. So then when you're done, so after your five or six months are up, do you want to go and work on anything else? Or are you just like, I need a fucking break? No, I need it. I need, I mean, I'm in that, I'm right now in that mode of like, I need a break. Like I just, I mean, I've only finished a few weeks ago and you know, and it's like, it's, I've used this analogy a few times now, but it's kind of like, um, you know, like my agent has been over the, in the last month I was shooting, it was really like, this season was really hard. It was the hardest one we've done just for all kinds of reasons. And the last month was really like January and into February was really hard for me, like physically and everything and exhaustion. And, and, you know, my agent was mentioning, oh, there's, you know, other series that are coming up and, th- you know, potential projects that she was pitching me on. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, I can't, it's, it's like, Someone at a smorgasbord, all-you-can-eat buffet, gorging themselves, eating, <laughs> and then someone coming up to me and say, "Hey, what do you want to eat for dinner tomorrow?" <laughs> and it's like, and I'm like, I don't want to talk about food. I don't want to. Don't even mention it. Like, and as I said, like, I can't. I'm not in a position right now to make any decisions on what to do next. I literally don't want to see a film set again for a while. I need to just walk away and like not because you get to that point every season. I felt a little bit of it that you kind of you get that little taste of like I feel like I'm close to being burned out. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm starting yeah. to not enjoy this job, and it's just—it's like I mean, I'm still able to come and I—I I, I can shut that off, and I can be positive, and I have to be the positive leader and all that. But you get those little like kind of creeping feelings of like, oh, I kind of—I kind of not into it today for some reason. Like I'm just, you know, it's like you're just tired, and it's like you yeah, just it's, I'm like it's a fucking—it's so it's a stamina game at that point. It's a stamina game, and you feel that little feeling creeping up, and you're like, I can't—I can't let this become the normal because if this becomes the normal, I—I I will hate my job. And I won't be able to perform. I can't do this job creatively and be inspired if I have that feeling. Yeah, yeah. So it reminds you, like, I the, the most dangerous thing right now is to take another job. If I take another job, it'll it'll destroy me, like, professionally. So it's like it, it's very. And when you're in that headspace, it's actually very easy to say no because you're like, you know what? I ha- I know that if I take the next thing, it's gonna it's gonna destroy me, like, creatively. And and you know when you when you feel when you're getting that close to that feeling, it's like it's not a good place to be and you have to then you you know you know yourself hopefully at that point well enough to know i have to step back and like go and not do like something else like go travel go play an instrument or whatever whatever the thing you do that's not film and of course it's very important to have things you do that aren't film and go do that thing you know go do that whatever for a while until you feel you're ready to come back and then at the end of it like so after you've had however many months it is off are you chomping at the bit to get back at this point or like how does that work yeah, I mean I I there's there yeah yeah there's a few after a few months or whatever I've had of a break I'll start to feel okay I'm ready to go back like I'm ready to do something else now you know and it seems to always work timing wise that it's around the time that I'm ready to go back you know but every time I finish I kind of feel like I want a little bit more time to to have a break you yeah. know <laughs> so you know, right now I'm so soon from finishing the last season that I'm still in that space of like, I don't know what to do next. Like I'm actually 
for the first time in my career, I'm like, I don't really know what I should do next. Like I, like there's nothing really immediately being presented to me. That's like, Oh, I have to do that. You know, I'm it's, you know, and there are some options on the table that I'm considering, but I, I have to, I'm really thinking carefully about it more than I ever have. Like, I'm really like, oh, should I do that? Like, am I really that into it? Right. You know, it's like, do I really need to do that, that, that job? You know, it's like, it's kind of like, I don't know. I guess you get to a point where it's like, well, I've, I've, uh, you know, I want whatever the next thing to do to be like, to mean something. Everything I've done up to this point, I've always chosen something that is, that's important to me. And it's like, you know, I guess once you get to a point when you become, oh, he's, a, you know, now he's like in a TV, like Jeremy does episodic television and he's, you know, he does good work and like people start calling you for like all kinds of things. And you're like, but I shouldn't just take that necessarily. Like it's there now. Like I'm getting offers that I wouldn't normally have, but, but should I, should I, you know, you have to be careful about what you take. You know, right, it's, right. It's perspective. Uh, it's perspective at that point because yeah, it's perspective and it's, it's something it's a, I'd never really been in that position before and like, and having to really think about like what what's right to do next, you know? Um, right. Cause it is series your, your thing now, or do you want to go back into film? Like, like, is there, well, that's, that's the hard, that's the hard part. I mean, the, the, that's the other thing about series television is that it's almost like once you get into it, it's hard to get out of it because you're, you're away for so long on these things that people that know you from the, you know, the other life is that you live in other parts of film. They think you're gone. They're like, Oh, he's in TV now. Like he's, 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 he's busy. He's booked on that show for months. Like you're, you're just, Right. You know, people just kind of assume that you're unavailable now. So when you come back out of it, no one's around. Like everyone, like you have to kind of like, Hey, remember me? Like, <laughs> and it's actually really, it's actually really hard to get back into anything that's not television. So part of me is like, do I, if I keep doing this, am I going to further pigeonhole myself into like, I'm the guy that does television, you know? And it's like, I'd like to do features again, but there aren't any features really around right now that are either being offered to me or that interest me or right. cause there's generally less of that out there. There's not as many features being made that are kind of like the medium to small exactly. feature. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Television has taken over that whole thing. So it's like, okay, well is this, I'm now looking at, I'm, you know, after doing this for five years, I'm like, is this going to be the rest of my life now? Is this, am I going to go from one six or seven month thing to, a, to another? Is that the new normal? Hmm. Hmm. You know? That's, and, a, that's an interesting question, actually. Like, where and, and the thing is, there are guy, there are people, and you know, my peers that do episodic television. And that's what they do. They've been doing that for for many many years, and that's what they do. But I'm now, I guess, I've just realized I've been, I kind of got caught up in the blurb for the last five years. That now I'm like, oh wow, I've done this for five years, and the next thing I'm being offered is another TV show. It's like, do do I do that? Like, is it right? Right. I'm further, kind of like, you know, digging that that path of like, you're the TV guy now, you know? And so I don't know. I, it's a, it's a tricky question. And I, I it all comes from the fact of like, I, I need space from finishing to have time to really think about it. Yeah. 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 That's interesting, man. It's a fascinating thing because then for me, the question would be, you know, do I want to get back into less of a managerial situation and more of like a hands-on kind of fucking thing? A- sure. Sure. Or, or just, or work on something where it's not such a long commitment. Like, yeah. do I, does, it, does everything have to be a six month thing? It's like, I mean, I, I used to come from like the short format, like commercials and things where it's like, you know, a week or a few days or, you know, whatever. Now it's like everything that I, that's being offered is like, well, the, do you want this seven month choice or this seven month choice or this four months or this six months or yeah, yeah. it's all big chunks of your life, you know? So they're not easy choices. You don't just go like, I mean, a commercial, someone calls and you're like, oh, it's two days next week. Like, oh yeah, sure. I can do that. Like, no, you don't even think, think really much about it. Right. But when someone calls and says, can you start in three weeks for five months? 
that's and a, you're like that's a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. You're like, uh, you know, especially when you've just come off of something else, and you're like, I just finished working for five months, like three weeks ago, and now I have to think about another five month thing that I'm going to start in like a month. And is that is is that good? Is that healthy? You know, and certainly it takes your toll on your health. Like it's very hard to maintain like a, a healthy lifestyle when you're working in that environment. Yeah. And it's like I'm you know I'm in my mid forties now, and I'm like if I do this for a long time, it's going to like, it's certainly going to age me. I'm not going to be healthy. I mean, I'm generally healthy now, but I've already seen that working in this world has like, I've gained weight a little bit. I've like, it's the, it's the stress. It's craft services. I have more gray hair. Like I (laughs) I had a kidney stone and I've never had a kidney stone before. And I had one in in January and it was like, I had to be rushed to the hospital from set. And it was like, it was all part and parcel of like the stress of, of making that show, you know? And it's like, it's like, do I, is that what the next five years of my life is going to be or 10 years or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. These are, these are really cool, really good insight actually. And really cool to hear your story with this stuff because I feel like from the outside and you know, the deal, like in this business, you really don't get access if you're not in it, you know what I mean? Sure. If you're not working it. And these are things that you don't really think about. And that's kind of what this show is about. You know, this show really is about the life and uh, sort of demystifying this stuff and, and sort of examining it like, okay, so here's kind of what the realities are. And then this is how it affects you as a human. Um, because making this decision, you making this decision to be a cinematographer that does a show like this, like you said, affects your health. It affects your relationships. Yeah. It affects yeah, all, it, all those things. It affects all those things. And I think it's, it's important that in our business that you, you know, you don't lose sight of the, of, of, who you are, you know, it's very easy to lose sight of your own identity of just you as a person, you know, you get so lost in this world of like make believe and the show is the most important thing. And everything revolves around that show that you, I mean, there's been times and I'm like, I kind of, I'm losing a sense of myself. Like I, I'm kind of getting lost in all this, you know, and it's because everything revolves around that show. It's the, it's the most important thing ever. And I think I've, I think I've realized that I, that the importance of like, don't lose like, a sense of who you are. Don't lose yourself. Don't forget about the things that are actually important in life that, you know, cause you can, so much of what we talk about in, in this, you know, is in our businesses about the, the tech stuff and the, the cool factor of doing different things and jobs and projects and all that hype of it, you know, and the, the social media aspect of it, of seeing everyone doing cool stuff. And you, you kind of often, you forget about the, the, individual the person of like mm-hmm. you have to there's a person behind that and they have to have a life and they have to you know if you don't have that it's like you fall apart like it's and i think in some ways the the kind of the the hype of like being in the industry and being current and doing the coolest latest stuff and all that you you know it, it's that hustle thing or whatever it is that that people what's that term like hustle porn or whatever that's out there that <laughs> yes that i think i think there is that factor that you can that when when you are in that headspace you lose you can lose yourself in it, you know? Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I, I think we're, we're doing good, man. Like we're, we're, I think we've got a good solid episode here. And we talked about really interesting stuff and the insight that you've given me, I, like you've answered a lot of questions that I have professionally about it. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad. Which is, which is fantastic. And I really appreciate that, man. It's really cool that you're, you're willing to open up and uh, share your experiences with me. And then with the audience that listens to this, uh, at this point of the show, what I try to do is is give you the opportunity to talk to younger folks and maybe uh, give them uh, something that you wish 
that you had known before you jumped on something like this? Like, is there some sort of insight that you can give us that you wish you had? You mean like me jumping into the expanse? I think so. I mean, I, I, I've looked at your whole career and everything's really interesting that you've done. And I, this, I've been sort of focusing this, this whole episode around your work on the expanse because you really, you're the first person that I'm talking to that has this access and it's this whole other world that really we haven't addressed on the show. So yeah, like for the expanse, it's something that you wish you had known before that. Well, maybe I'll answer two ways and one way is maybe not quite that answer, but I mean, one, as far as like advice to younger people, I've, I've been asked this before and, and I'll give you two answers and you can pick which one works, I guess. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, the, I think there's a lot of, in our business, there's a lot of, um, you know, you, re- rejection is part of what we do, right? Like it's mm-hmm. like, you, you may not get the job or something falls apart and you lose an opportunity and, you know, I mean, we all deal with that and it's, it, you know, it's, it can be, you know, it can be sort of disillusioning or it can, it can kind of like, it, it can be a, a tough thing as you, as you're growing in your career. And I think the one thing I've learned, and I've, I've had many lessons in this, that, that when something like, when something doesn't go your way and you don't get that thing that you really wanted or it falls apart, that off, more often than not, there's something good happens out of that. There's always some other flip side of it that, that where it works out and you know, you look back on, you're like, Oh yeah, that actually kind of like it worked out for some weird reason. And I, so I try and always like, because I've struggled with that a lot over in my career where I've, I've, I've had certain opportunities not happen or you compare yourself to somebody else and you're like, you get kind of bummed by something. And yeah, you know, I've had experiences where like literally like a whole feature fell apart that I was signed on to and I was super looking forward to it and it, it, it crumbled. And then suddenly I have no work for like seven weeks because I've turned, I've cleared my whole schedule and like, suddenly I'm unemployed for like weeks and, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and when that I had an example where that happened and I met, that's how I met Adrian Moat when I did, um, I did a tire commercial after this feature fell apart and Adrian came to town and, and he liked my reel and I, I got this job with him, which turned into doing killing Lincoln. That's so cool. And, and that was like, and that went on to be like one of the best things I'd ever done. Like, like I, you know, won awards and you know, and if I'd done that movie that, that I was supposed to do, I would I would have never met Adrian. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I think I think that's it's, it's one of those things that you as a as you go through your career, you're always going to be faced with those sorts of disappointments, and it always somehow works out that, that that something better comes of it. I don't know how to explain it. It just always seems like it does, and it you know I think it's I think if, if people know that other people will go through through that kind of thing, that maybe it helps deal with when things don't go your way or you don't get the thing you wanted or, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I I feel the same exact way, man. Like when I, when I direct and I've, my last big short that I did, uh, I remember having like miserable, I had a miserable day, like an absolute miserable day. We're there and nothing seems to be working and it just seems like a fucking battle. Like everything is a battle. Yeah. And I would just come home and I was just watching, I was digging deep and just watching YouTube videos of directors that I have always admired and I stumbled across a couple, I think it was, I don't know if it was Fincher or somebody else, and he was like, every day's a fucking battle, and it's always a battle. Right. And just hearing that, it's like, oh shit, this is what my life is. This is yeah. the job. And then you it's start to realize, yeah, 
Exactly. And then once you yeah. once you get that in your head, you're like, oh, okay, fuck it. All right. So then this is what I'm supposed. Okay. So this is normal. This is a normal <laughs> thing. Got it. <laughs> and then yeah. I, I just sort of loosened up after that and was like, yeah. oh, okay, fuck it. All right. Got it. And you're right. Yeah, I, it's true. I mean, and I, I mean, as far as like, if I could think of what I, something I wish I'd known going into Expanse, um, I guess it was probably, it was kind of, it gets back to what I was saying earlier of, of if you're, you know, cause you're trying to frame this answer in sort of a way of like, if someone gets into an opportunity of doing something bigger and what to know, kind of, is that what you're yeah, raising it Kind of, but more just from your perspective, like what was the thing that afterwards you were like, oh man, I shouldn't have fucking worried about this. Or maybe I should have spent more time doing this and it would have made my life a little bit easier. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and if I'm trying to think of examples of that, I mean, it's, yeah, if you don't get in it. A way, in a way I had, so I had so much prep time on that, that I, I was able to kind of really tr- get as good a handle on things as I could before. I mean, certainly I look back and there were like things aesthetically and creatively that I would do different now. But I mean, at the time I think I did, I made the best use of the time I had in prep to, to do the best I could then. So, you know, in a way I, I don't look back and I'm like, I don't know what I would have done differently going through that. You know, it's like, I kind of just, I kind of figured it out as I went. Mm-hmm. Because I had the time and prep to do it, you know. So, um, which I don't know if that's really the answer that you that you need. No, it's uh, fine. No, it's good, man. I don't need any specific answer. I'm trying, I'm trying to phrase it. I can't think of something off the top of my head that's like if I only had known this going into it or no, it's whatever. Totally, it's, I mean, it's I mean, totally really good. like what I was saying before about about the the, the rigging crew thing and like because that's the thing I didn't really know yeah. going into it of really having of understanding that machine that. I may have made more use of it if I had understood it more. And of course, as I got through the show and did did more seasons, I fully embraced it. Then I I fully understood the resource I had at my disposal. But I think then I didn't fully realize how much of an army I had kind of at my fingertips that I wasn't really fully like mobilizing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's, I think as you get, as you get up into those bigger um, shows, you, you know, and if you haven't had that experience before, you know, you'll, you'll, uh, at first you probably won't realize that you have that at your disposal. No, it's good. Dude, it's actually really great. That's a good insight into the whole thing because I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of listeners that don't work in the business don't even know about a rigging. Like you start to see that, that, that scroll of crew at the end and you glaze over, you know what I mean? By the sure. time you hit to rigging crew, you're like, what the fuck is that? Um, but it's, I've got a lot of friends that work on rigging crews. So I, I understand that that job for those guys is also an interesting job because they don't, I know a lot of guys that prefer to be on rigging crews instead of being on, on set crews because it doesn't come with the stress. That's right. And also, also they have predictable hours too, right? Yeah. Like they, yeah, yeah. they work their standard shift and they go home, yeah. you know, it's, and, and our, our, you know, Gary, my rigging gaffer, he prefers to be the rigging gaffer. He likes that position. He does. He likes the, the not having to be on set thing. The, the hours are better for him, you know, he gets to kind of do all the problem solving. He likes that part of the job. So I, I get it. Like it's, there, it's certainly, there's an attraction there. If you, if you want that kind of lifestyle and pace. And I will say this, man, I'd like, it's super cool to chat with you about all this stuff. And I kind of envy your toolbox at this point, you know, cause we always, every time you do a movie, every time you do a project, every time you do a little bit of research, you have sort of this mental toolbox of, yeah. of tricks. You must have, a ton of new tricks after doing such a long running show in that toolbox of yours at this point. Well, I certainly, I mean, I've certainly, I've learned a lot. I mean, I, I, I've definitely learned more in the last five years than I have in probably the last 
25 years, but I've needed everything I learned in those first 20 years to do what I'm doing in the last five years. So it's kind of all compounded, but I've, I mean, certainly just in terms of how we build lights and the LED stuff and gimbals and every, all that stuff, like it's all stuff that I didn't know about five years ago. So, I mean, it's, you know, I think about lighting and everything totally differently now. And it's completely changed the way I think. I think everything I would do going forward after this will always be influenced and built upon what I've learned from doing the show from Expanse. Thanks for listening, guys. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. I'm very happy that we're full throttle. This is episode 35, which is really cool. Um, And the guests seem to be getting bigger and higher profile. Uh, And if you guys continue to support, if you continue to tune in, I promise you it will grow with me as as a director. As I start to get access to folks, I will give you access to these people Um, which I think is the cool thing to do here. Uh, I always believe in giving back. I always believe in sharing as I know, as I learn. Um, And I wish I had that. And that's why I'm doing this show. Um, But if you love the show, please show how much you love it by supporting us. If you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, there's a donation button there, $5. It's through PayPal. Super easy to do. Um, But if you can't afford $5, and I'm not going to judge you, Because if you're listening to the show, you probably work in the same business that I do. And I know how hard it is to make fucking money. Uh, But if you can't afford that and you haven't already done so, if you haven't signed up for an Audible account, then if you go and sign up uh, through uh, audibletrial.com, I'll put the link underneath this. I always fuck it up. It's like audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. I think that's what it is. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm doing this anyways. So fuck it. <laughs> but if you go and you sign up for Audible using our link below, uh, you'll get a 30-day free trial. You'll get a free audiobook, right? And it's actually really rad. Like I enjoy it because I don't have enough time to read books these days. I feel like if I open up a book and I start scanning through it with my eyes, five minutes later I'm asleep. Maybe it's because I work too hard. I don't know what the fuck it is. Uh, so what I do often is I just listen to it. It's easier. It's like listening to a podcast. You know, you're driving in the car. If you live in LA, you're in the fucking car all day anyways. So uh, check it out. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash love of the process. I'm such a shitty fucking podcast host because I should have that in front of me for the read. Um, and sign up for it. 30 day free trial. Get a free book. Uh, and if you like it, stick with it. If you don't like it, cancel it. We still get paid. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not, but fuck it. We still get paid. So it's the best way to get us some loot if you don't want to reach in your own pocket. So definitely check that out. And then support us by visiting and following us on Instagram. It's in love with the process POD on Instagram. That's in love with the it's in love with the process pod on Instagram. Or you can follow my personal account at Mike Petchy. Uh, both these places I've been trying to keep them pretty consistent with updates and posts. I know on the podcast account, I've been doing a lot of really cool, like, set behind the scenes stuff from old movies that I love. I had a lot of success posting, like, how they did the motorcycle sequence in Terminator 2, which I think is super cool. Um, And then I'm also answering questions. I'm also uh, getting 
really good feedback from you guys. That's also where I do a lot of live Instagram stuff where I'll sit there and answer your questions live there. But if you have suggestions for the show, if you want uh, a specific topic covered, uh, if you want to tell me that I'm just a fucking moron, that's where to do it. (laughs) So definitely follow me on Instagram. Um, And that's kind of it. I'm trying to keep it lean and mean for these episodes. I'm banging them out as fast as I can. Uh, Stack them up. Uh, We'll see. I I think I'm trying to do these bi-weekly. We'll see if I can make that work. I haven't been able to get to every week yet. And if you want an episode every week, you got to tell your friends. I need more fucking people listening to this show. Uh, it helps me with sponsors. I get a couple more sponsors. I can do this every week. Anyway, as you can tell, I'm exhausted. Uh, so I am going to go shower and just fall into the mattress right now. I'll hopefully just disappear into a whole other dimension or sleep is death. (laughs) I'll see you guys later.